Jesus is the living embodiment of grace and truth. Grace and truth in flesh and bone. This is core to who we are as his people to understand that Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. And that Jesus welcomes the wounded, he heals the brokenhearted, he redeems the sinner. And the church is a community alive by and alive with grace and truth. Jesus acknowledges, he confronts, he challenges our sin, our past, our pain-riddled history, and he washes us with his love and he wraps his gentle, loving arms around us. In his staggering grace, we are no longer condemned, right? He has taken our sin upon himself. He's given us his life. He has spoken to us words of life. Go and sin no more. And he has also called us his beloved. Grace and truth. They live, they breathe together. They are two sides of one beautifully woven cloth. And I want to acknowledge today in this sort of preamble here before I get into the core of the sermon, I want to acknowledge today that here, and for those of you who are watching online, that among us today are those whose lives have been affected by abortion. There are those who are here today, men and women for whom talk of abortion is not an abstraction. It's, it's not simply a political debate or a theological position, but it's a memory. It's part of their story. It's a scar. It's a wound. It's, it's a sneaker wave of grief that crashes on the shores of their life. And so today, as we continue in our series, as we talk about loving the vulnerable, please know if, if that is you, there is an ocean of forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. Please know that there is no act, no past, no regret, no dark part of our story that is too big for the cross of our Savior to redeem. There's no guilt, there's, there's no shame, and there is no hurt on earth that heaven cannot heal. And we need to hear this before we enter into what we're going to be talking about today. And because maybe some of you are thinking there, you know, there's no forgiveness for what I've done. There, there's no forgiveness for the, the damage or destruction I've caused. There is. Jesus Christ, our Savior, forgives, redeems, and restores. He doesn't come to, to browbeat us, right? He comes to lift up our face and lift up our head and to call us his children. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So my prayer is that all of uh, what I say today is experienced in the warmth and hope of the gospel's grace and truth that is embodied in Jesus Christ, our King. So please know this, that this is not a place for those who have never sinned. That is not what this church is. This is a place for the needy, for the heartbroken, for the past haunted, for the weak. This is a place for those who need redemption, and that means all of us, because we all need his redemption. This is a place for those who hurt, those who know of the pains of abortion. 
Now, um, I just want to say you're welcome here. And we want this to be a safe place for you. As, as Carrie said, um, the child is precious. Mom, you're precious. Dad, you're precious. Um, and you're valuable. So I pray you hear that with your heart as well as your ears this morning um, as we move forward. Now, we have been in a sermon series that has been looking at the global and historic distinctives of the church. And one of these distinctives is that the church is committed to the sanctity of life, acknowledging and honoring image bearers of all ages. Of all ages. The church is on the side of life. The spirit is the spirit of life and vitality. Now this is not a cultural preference that has flexed or or changed throughout the centuries or a political stance just taken up by camps of Christians at various times in history. This is a global and historic here we stand position. It was in Roman times and it remains for us now a countercultural position of the church. It's a distinctive of the church. God's people are a contrast community. And so today, as we explore this, here's our roadmap, very similar to last week. Here's our roadmap for where we're going today. First, we're going to look at a little history, the sanctity of life. We're going to rewind the timeline. Then we're going to look at some theology, the imago Dei, the image of God. We're going to talk about that through our scriptures. We're going to jump a little bit into some sociology and science to pull some of these things together. We're going to look at humanity, what it means to be human, and personhood theory. And then we're going to come to the conclusion by talking about apprenticeship. How shall we live knowing these things that God has revealed? So first, some history. You already saw this in the video, but let's enter into it a little bit more. The following is a letter of a man named Hilarion who seems to have moved away from his, his wife and, and his child in search of work. And this letter is dated the 17th of June, 1 B.C. It reads as follows. Hilarion, that's the writer, sends many, many greetings to his sister, along with my lady Berus and Apollinarian. Listen, we are still in Alexandria. Don't worry about this. If they go home completely, that's the rest of the group he's with, I will stay in Alexandria. I am asking you and begging you to take care of the little child, and when we are paid, I will send it to you right away. Now, up until this point, this sounds like an ordinary everyday letter of care and concern from a man working to bless his family. But as you know, it continues on with a horrifying cavalier sentence. If you happen to be pregnant again, if it is a boy, leave it. If it is a girl throw it out. This letter would raise no eyebrows. It was the normalized way of things. Abortion and infanticide were common tools of the culture of the day. No big deal, throw it out, get on with things. Here, what he's talking about is, is often called exposure. The practice of taking an unwanted child and leaving them outside somewhere so that they would die or be picked up by somebody. They were often taken to certain parts of the city or to the trash heaps, to the dump, right, outside of the city and left there where they would either die from exposure from the elements, they would be eaten by wild animals, or they would be taken in by someone. Someone would hear their cries and they would adopt them. Most often, they would be adopted or taken in, rather, to be slaves. And most often, it would be 
so that he would be a sex slave. The majority of those left to die were girls, right? as we see here in our letter. And brothel owners and slave traders were on the prowl for future commodities. And a baby's cry out in the trash heap meant more money in their pockets. One estimation is that 150,000 slaves were added to the Roman system every year by way of exposure. Most of those entering into some form of sex trafficking, sex slavery. But a distinct group of people was also on the prowl, walking the city streets at night in the early hours of the morning, walking around the dumps, listening, leaning in, seeing if they heard the cry of a child. And this group, well, this was that backwards, upside-down community known as the Way, followers of Jesus. The church was on the side of life in a culture of death. The church spoke in word and deed against the common devaluing of human life that was all around them. Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, all recommended infanticide as legitimate state policy. But the church was committed to the sanctity of life. Human life was sacred. So here's a little bit of that history. The Didache, this is an early Christian instruction text from 50 to 120 A.D., um, from Jewish origin, it says simply, clearly, do not murder a child by abortion or kill at birth. Another text, the Epistle of Barnabas, written somewhere between 70 and 130 A.D. This is from um, Egyptian origin, but written in Greek. It says, you shall not slay a child by abortion. Athenagoras, uh, an Athenian Christian, in between 133 and 190, wrote, We regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being and therefore an object of God's care. Tertullian, a well-known early church father from 155 to 220 from Carthage, uh, he's an African. He said, It does not matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming in to the birth. In both instances, destruction is murder. This is all over the world, right? This is throughout the centuries, throughout the decades. This isn't just one opinion in one location. In fact, there was a bishop named Bishop Basil Caesarea. He challenged the government of his day. He argued persistently and persuasively against Valentinian, the Roman emperor, to outlaw the practice of infanticide, and eventually he got through, and Valentinian did outlaw the practice. Now, the impulse the impulse for the sanctity of human life that would not accept abortion as, as an option is not a 20th or a 21st century or a conservative or an American impulse. It's a Christian position that's found in God's word and it's rooted in God's design and it goes back much farther than 1st century AD. Right? It goes way back, all the way back to page 1 as we read earlier, to the beginning as attested to the writings in the writings of Moses, circa 1500 B.C., So from history now to theology, let's look at Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. Again, let me me reread it just so it is ringing in our, our head and our hearts. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So here, in the creation account, we see what is called the doctrine of the Imago Dei, 
which is uh, the image of God. We are made in the image of God. Christian theology is avid that human beings are distinct from the rest of creation. They are alone made in the image of God, made for intimate relationship with Him, designed with hearts that are shaped for, for eternity, for union with God, designed to lovingly exercise rule over the world, to bring out of chaos order and and to bring that which is diverse and differentiated together for flourishing, for the total well-being of, of all, to cultivate life, to cultivate life. Here, by the way, is the source, the origin for equality in human rights. Right? The well-known preamble, the Declaration of Independence, says, as many of you know and can quote, we hold these truths to be, what? Self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And this text is rooted in the theology we see in Genesis 1. Human beings have inherent dignity, incalculable worth, are rooted, and that's rooted in being image bearers of God. And this precious essence is found simply in being human. The only logical ground for affirming human rights is a transcendent appeal, an appeal to the Creator. And to this theological truth, even famed, angry, mentally sharp atheist Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche himself who hated Christianity and didn't affirm human rights, he wrote this, he said, the Christian concept of the equality of the soul of souls before God furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. That's Nietzsche who says that. And he's no friend of Christ. The Christian concept of humanity depends on who, on what we are, beings created in God's image. It is not dependent upon what we do or certain faculties working at certain, certain levels. We don't have to earn our essence as image bearers. It's not earned. We do not need to earn the right to be treated as beings with great dignity, with great value. And this precious humanity begins in the womb. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. We don't have time to read the whole um, beautiful psalm, but here's a key portion of what David writes. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, you know my whole history. You know the days I am allotted. You know what's going to happen in my life. You knew it while you knit me together in my mother's womb. The scriptures are very clear. Human beings are not accidents, not biological coincidences. But our life is the result of God's loving intention, Him overseeing in intimate fashion our creation. 
And yes, we, we understand it is a biological process at work in, in the mom, in the life of this child, right? We understand that, that biology is doing all these wonderful things, but God, as our creator, has overseen this. God knits together in deepest detail who we are as his image bearers. Right? He saw us in, in utero. The whole point of this psalm is that God's presence is there doing something. God is not absent. He is present he is present in the darkness of creation. He's present in, in the darkness of the womb where he is bringing life. So he saw us in utero. He was at work on us and in us at eight weeks when eyelids and palms and hands start having sensitivity. He was at work on us and in us at nine weeks when our fingers bend around an object placed in our palm, when unique fingerprints start to appear, when we begin to suck our thumbs for the first time. Wonderfully at work there at nine weeks. He's wonderfully at work on us at 11 weeks when vocal cords and taste buds are forming and functioning. He's intimately at work at 12 weeks when, he could feel, when we could feel and recoil from pain. Which is why anesthesia is applied to children in the womb when surgery is going to be happening. He's wonderfully at work at us in 20 weeks. And how old is 20 weeks? when you see their eyebrows and their little body hair and their beautiful lips he's at work forming, fashioning Psalm 139 is a Holy Spirit born acknowledgement that we are a human being, an image bearer loaded with worth, dignity, eternal value while in the womb God's life-giving, value-investing, dignity-endowing presence is there in the womb, bringing the light of life to the darkness. And on that note, by the way, did you know scientists have discovered this interesting little fact that when the sperm meets the egg, there's a tiny flash of sparks. There is literally a firework that erupts at the moment of conception. One researcher said it this way, to see the zinc radiate out in a burst from each human egg was breathtaking. <laughs> Let there be light. It's incredible. Incredible. The scriptures affirm over and over again that children are a gift of God. And one of the great acts of horror in the Old Testament is the sacrifice of children, right? To the terrible God, Molech. Infants burned alive to satisfy this broken God to bring about his broken blessings. Deuteronomy 12.31 makes it clear, right? We've read a bunch of other ancient documents. Let's read some more scripture. Deuteronomy 12.31 says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, the way of the Canaanites and all those who are around them, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters and the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Now you go from that horrible thing to a, a beautiful tender moment. Do you remember... Do you remember that, that meeting of John the Baptist and Jesus? Where's John the Baptist when he meets Jesus for the first time? Yeah, in, in his mom's belly, right? So you have John the Baptist meeting Jesus for the first time. And by the Spirit, this baby jumps in Elizabeth's womb when he's in proximity to his Savior who is in his mother's womb. 
Isn't that incredible? These little ones in utero are persons, human beings with agency and destiny. Everything intrinsic to a human being is present from fertilization. The entire being unfolds in a continuum from conception, from those fireworks. Now this, by the way, I think is a good moment to slide over into the realm of sociology and science just for a moment. Caveat, I am not a scientist. You all know that. as a literature major, and I like theology. Um, And I am not a sociologist. But there are some great sociologists and scientists out there. A shift, by the way, has been undertaken in the advocacy for abortions throughout the decades. A shift away from science. The bulk of reason given to undergird abortion is found in personhood theory. Personhood theory. Have you heard of this? Do you know this? We should. We should know this. Personhood theory is the idea that being a human is different from having personhood. Being a human is different from having personhood. And it is personhood that is the basis for legal rights. You can see where this is going. The upshot is that even though a fetus is a human being, it can be legally killed because it doesn't have personhood. Personhood theory prevails among bioethicists today. It's the root of most academic, political, and personal reasoning for abortion. Science used to be said to be on the side of abortion, but in reality, that's just not the case any longer. Almost every professional bioethicist concedes that a fetus is human from conception. But to kill a vulnerable human doesn't sound out well for most people. And so a distinction has been made. Being human is not the same as having personhood. So for example... Princeton ethicist Peter Singer shows this thinking when he says, the life of the human organism begins at conception. Now just stop. Listen to that statement. The life of the human organism begins at conception. But the life of a person, of a being with some level of self-awareness, does not begin so early. Like, man... What a move was made there. A catastrophic move. Life at conception, sure. Fetus is human, yes. Not a person, nope. Okay, to destroy. Um, We see this in Roe versus Wade. Justice Harry Blackman said a human fetus is not a person. Listen to his quote. The word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. If the suggestion of personhood is established, the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed. (laughs) What? In other words, we can't call the fetus a human or, or a person, even though it's a human, because if we call it a person, then it would be illegal to do this because we'd be taking away life and liberty from this individual. But it's just a human, not a person, so it's okay. See, our our Christian position is that the human being is a person, a person that is made in the image of God. Therefore, this is the solid ground on which human rights exist all across the board. So again, like why this person of theory? Because honestly, science is not on abortion's side. Virtually no professional bioethicist denies that life begins at conception. 
the fetus is biologically, physiologically, and genetically human. The genetic dye is cast at conception, eye color, hair color, body structure, on and on and on. And biology gives a baseline for identifying a human. It's objective, empirical, testable, universally detectable in its markers of human status. You know, when talking about um, endangered sea turtles, which, by the way, it seems like their, their eggs are worth more than human lives these day, this day, uh, we, we don't talk about a turtle being, um, being a sea turtle while it's in the shell, but then when it comes out, it has now achieved turtlehood. We don't do that. We don't say, well, it's, it's a turtle, you know, genetically, physiologically, biologically, and then pop, the shell breaks, and out comes a cute little beak, and now it has personhood. We, we don't talk about it that way. Yet the egg and the hatch turtle are protected. Why? Because well, science and common sense there. Yet a human being is just a human unless some secondary characteristics come into play to bring about personhood, which has disastrous consequences if you follow this train of thought. So you see why the move then to personhood theory. Okay, so, so a few things to consider here. Um, if a human is okay to destroy, but personhood is not, man, Pandora's box, just poof, wide open. But if that is the case, if it's okay to destroy a human, but not someone with personhood, it's key to know what makes for personhood then, right? That seems like a big deal. And there is little agreement here about what qualifies for personhood. Because some additional criteria is needed on top of being a human to enter into personhood. Maybe it's self-awareness or certain levels of brain function and cog cognition, according to Peter Singer, that's the case. Bioethicist Josh Harris defines personhood as when a creature is capable of valuing its own existence. Does that mean my personhood disappears while I sleep? <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of interesting ways you can talk about these things. For others, personhood is, consists of a, of a lack. It's a lack of biological or, or genetic defect. Like the Spartans or the ancient Romans or like the Nazis thought. It's defective. Kill it. It has club foot. We don't want it. There's something wrong with it physiologically. We don't want it. That's okay. It's not human. Get rid of it. Excuse me. It's not a person. Get rid of it. Goodness. James Watson, co-discoverer of DNA, half of famous Watson and Crick, advocated waiting three days after birth to see if any defect would show up. And if a defect did, then it was not labeled with personhood and could be disposed. Peter Singer, who I already mentioned, suggested up to three years old is a gray area. Because, yeah, I mean, toddlers. I mean, really, are they people? Sometimes it doesn't seem like it. They get a little crazy. But up to three years old? See what happens when you start adding the need for extra criteria? Crick, he was right there, too. Francis Crick. 
the other half of, of Watson there. I quote, here's what he said. No newborn infant should be declared human, i.e. having personhood, until it passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment. And if it fails these tests, it forfeits its right to life. I say all this to, to put forward, it is an immensely dangerous thing. It is a destructive thing when the state or when policy or when a hypothesis dictates what human beings get to be labeled persons. Because all these things change. Policies, right? They blow in the winds of administration and opinions. Those will shift. Does humanity's nature shift? Science discovers and reroutes. What is needed is a transcendental source for human beings to be person. Right? What is needed is a transcendental source for human rights to be unalienable. And so with, with that... I want to take a step back here, and uh, I want to take us maybe into a little bit more uncomfortable territory here for a moment, as if we haven't been swimming in those waters <laughs> already. But um, in grace, let's move forward here. Um, a little more equal opportunity critique in the polarization in which we live. Now, it is no secret, right, that, that the left, that liberal thought is generally for Abortion, using the word generally here. And that the right, the conservative side, is generally not for abortion. Now, we're uncomfortable. But two things. But the left, which avidly fights for social action on the basis of what? Human rights. The left, which avidly fights for social action on the basis of human rights, critiquing and challenging unjust systems that do violence to human dignity. That same position, in order to hold a pro-abortion opinion, has to hold to a personhood theory that can, cannot solidly ground human rights and in fact leads to terrible inequities that lead to devastation for classes, for races, for abilities of human beings. It falls in on itself. It implodes. Personhood theory will always create unequal rights because some human being is assigning the personhood or some policy, not some transcendent source. Personhood theory is the same stuff that justified slavery. They're subhuman because of X, Y, or Z. It's the same thing that animated the nightmares of Nazi eugenic thought. It's the same stuff. It's born out of the same waters. Now swing over to the right with me. Here's a curiosity. Here's a curiosity. Many on the far right will appeal to human rights to fight against abortion but will often ignore other social injustices, racial and financial, that are destructive, yet that are based on the very same understanding of equal rights because we are human beings, that we are all image bearers of God. 
we will aim at this target of abortion, and there's others we don't care about. Now, how, how does that gel? How does that all live together? So could it be, I want to I ask this, could it be that our political ideologies and personal opinions cannot bear the weight of human rights of worth and dignity? The sanctity of human life, by the way, does not only concern abortion, as we're talking about today. It is a very large category. What are the lives of those with disabilities? What are the lives of those at the other end of life? Palliative care and, and elderly care. What are the topics of, of eugenics and then euthanasia? Of violence? Of adoption? Of, of foster care? of sex trafficking, all of these are wrapped into this idea of, of the Imago Dei. The same distortion in thinking that disavows the sacred nature of all human life was exactly what had the Nazis putting the disabled into the same gas chambers that they would eventually use on the Jewish people. There are indelible ties between Margaret Sanger's death culture eugenics, her selective breeding ideology, which is well known, and Planned Parenthood's role in normalizing abortion. And this, in fact, is so evident that Planned Parenthood moved to remove the name of Margaret Sanger, the founder of the National Organization, from its Manhattan health clinic um, as of late because of her, and I quote, harmful connections to the eugenics movement rooted in her racism, ableism, and classism. All this to say there's a culture of death at work in this world. And it's, it's everywhere, it's in the air, it's, it's in the water. But the work of the Spirit of Jesus is to bring life. And he does it by entering into the mess and entering into the pain and bringing healing through his love and his grace. The church is committed to the sanctity of life, acknowledging and honoring people of all ages. And so again, the sanctity of life extends to all ages and expressions of human life. This is not just an abortion issue. It also concerns, as I mentioned, eugenics, euthanasia, adoption, foster care, disability ministry, end of life, hospice care, etc. Do we have the eyes to see the sanctity of life in all these areas? So as we close, how do we as apprentices of Jesus respond well, as Jesus responded, Psalm, Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So what do we do as apprentices of Jesus? We become advocates for the vulnerable, voices for the voiceless. Right, we embody that Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 that the Holy Spirit has put forward to us. We move to the places of pain, even at great cost to ourselves, for the flourishing of others. That's the way of Jesus. We also we embody the grace of God. We welcome the abortion wounded with open arms into a safe gospel-shaped community. And we strive to do that and crucify the things within ourselves that don't open up arms in hospitality to those who are in need. 
we embody the truth. We learn how to speak about the sanctity of life from a biblical basis, teaching the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And we enter into partnership with those who are trained on the ground advocates for life. Because we can't do this thing on our own. We need each other. We're a community. And so we enter into partnership and help those who God has uniquely called to enter into the fray in these distinct ways to offer love, care, and compassion through the medical services, through the counseling, through the personal love. And let me close with this. If, if wounded by abortion, reach out for care. Mom, Dad, your life is precious. Christ died that you might truly live. So may we, like Jesus, become advocates for the vulnerable, voices for the voiceless. May we embody the grace of God. May we embody the truth. May we enter into partnership with those that he has called in unique ways to care for, for the vulnerable. And may we learn what it means by greater and greater degree to be ambassadors of life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your love and your grace. And Lord, I just, I, I, I want to ask that what is experienced and understood today, whether we're here or whether we're watching online, what is experienced is the reality that you are a God of life. You are the giver of the gift of life and that there is grace in you. And yet you are the God of truth. There are things that are not okay because they are destructive and hurtful and harmful. And so today, Lord, um, would we see the beauty of Christ and may we um, see our calling as ambassadors of life, those who honor and acknowledge image bearers of all ages. I love you. That's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.